Welcome to the Business Builders Podcast from MSATP. In this episode, Carl Schwartz and Andrew Bishop from Alliance Bernstein will shed some light on the one question that will close the deal when you're selling your business. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome everybody to today's meeting with Carl Schwartz and Andrew Bishop from Alliance Bernstein. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank Sandy and Heather and all of MSATP for uh, their help and giving us this forum for this discussion. Today's topic is, it's a wonderful deal, selling a business with confidence. The context of our discussion will be with myself. Uh, My name is Carl Schwartz. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm an advisor a financial advisor with Alliance Bernstein here in the D.C. office. Uh, my practice is not only this area, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, um, but it's global in nature. I often work with international families, and a lot of the work finds its way into business owners that have businesses that are either entertaining and or selling um, their business. Andrew Bishop is here with me, a colleague. He's a director in our Wealth Strategies group. At Bernstein, our Wealth Strategies group is made up of former trust and estate attorneys, accountants, and um, other financial advisors, CFAs. Complex financial planning is oftentimes what we do when they'll work together. I work with Andrew on clients and prospects. We have planning tools to help our clients achieve their goals. This discussion is a case study of a client that was selling their business. They were entertaining offers, and they wanted to understand how that would impact from their personal goals, financial goals, wealth transfer to their family, whether it be next generation, children, grandchildren, or other heirs, charity, and the like, and implications for them, and as well as perhaps the goals of a second career and the like. Um, Andrew will will share much of the analysis on this topic uh, in the context of this case study, and the names have been changed. Before we do that, I'd like to just share a few minutes about us and our firm. Many of the Many of you people in this area may not be familiar with Bernstein, though we've been around for the past 50 plus years. Uh, We're a firm that does nothing other than investment research and investment management. We're perhaps the largest global independent investment research and management firm. We have uh, 51 offices in 25 countries. We manage over $550 billion in assets. We have no debt. And perhaps what's most important in the context of this discussion is we have north of 260 research analysts. And their analysis is not only in terms of investing. They're placed globally in theater looking at geographies and markets and industries. We also have research analysts and experts like Andrew in our Wealth Strategies group that help us understand the complex financial needs of our of our clients. We are a fiduciary and act in our clients' best interests, which is unique in the brokerage uh, model, 
industry space. And uh, perhaps that's a great segue into our next slide, which is the market that we serve. In the United States, perhaps 2% of the population would be deemed affluent or wealthy or of high, of high or ultra high wealth. In that space, if you look at this pyramid, you'll see the top green part are people that have complex needs. Now, they may be corporate executives or entrepreneurs or business owners. Um, they may also be individuals or multi-generational multi families or endowments. Oftentimes, these people are not only dealing with questions of will I or won't I be okay, meaning will I have enough money to endow my lifestyle or the lifestyle of my children or grandchildren, but they're really asking questions around what am I missing? What could I potentially do? And in this case study we're going to talk about with this business owner, there are opportunities that they have afforded through the various offers that are available to them and understanding the ability for them to analyze these could help them understand what their future opportunities are, whether that be in terms of wealth transfer, philanthropy, or just simply tax savings and the opportunity to do other things. Most importantly is we, we're, we work with our clients around their unique goals and how their particular situation, their challenges and their complexities relate to their unique situation. Our work is tailored and bespoke. With that said, if you look at this slide, you'll see on the left-hand side, we have clients, we'll work with clients in two different ways, perhaps. Clients, oftentimes, we'll work closely with them on their plans and their goals. We'll help them maximize their overall returns and mitigate their risk of, of their investments. On the right side, there may be clients that you work with that already have a financial quarterback. In that case, they're asking questions like, hey, can you fill a slot? Um, can we invest in a sleeve of an area of opportunity that we don't have in our portfolio? Oftentimes, we work with clients on a thematic or opportunistic alternative investment strategy. We can meet clients where they want to be met. I'd like to hand over the microphone to my colleague, Andrew Bishop at this time, who will introduce himself and share this case study, which will bring to life the sale of a business and how it can affect the business owner in terms of assessing their goals and lifestyle, wealth transfer, tax savings, Andrew. Thank you, Carl, and, and really thank you all for the opportunity to speak today. You know, as Carl mentioned, I'm an associate director in what's called our Wealth Strategies Group. You know, think of our Wealth Strategies Group really as the planning arm of the firm. Um, we're a national group. Carl mentioned 30 people, varying backgrounds. We have a couple trust and estate attorneys, former analysts, actuaries, accountants, um, and our sole responsibility is really researching and understanding all of the complex planning issues that our clients face. So this might just be helping a client think about when they can retire or helping them diversify out of a concentrated stock holding. Or it could be helping them transfer wealth to charity and family in the most tax efficient manner. Now my focus within the group is really with business owners, in particular helping them plan for an eventual sale and dimensioning what they should be thinking about before, during, and after the sale so they can achieve all of their goals. And that's what we're gonna walk through today. So today I'm gonna to walk you through this case study that 
that really illustrates the planning we, we can do for, for client owners who are selling their business. My goal as I go through this is for you to gather a couple of things. First, I, I hope you get a sense of our analytical tools and how we can apply them to very complex strategies and situations, but also how we can incorporate and integrate the advice that all the owner's advisors are giving them to ensure that everyone's collectively working towards the same common goal. And by going through a process like I'm gonna to outline today, it, it not only helps an owner understand that they're gonna be okay, but also as Carl mentioned two slides ago, it helps them understand what they may be missing. So we're gonna walk you through a case that really uh, highlights and, and articulates those key points. But let me start on, on this page here. And you know we've gone through several cases here and, and I can tell you every case, every owner's different, they have different goals, different terms, but what's consistent across all the deals we've seen is that when the owner surrounds him or herself with a very experienced team of advisors, the outcomes tend to be better. There's better deal terms. They've probably thought through taxes. The due diligence process is a lot simpler. And just to be clear here, we at Bernstein, we don't provide tax, legal, accounting, or advice on the deal. But where we work really well is in tandem with the business owner's other professional advisors. You know, we can use our analytical tools to really quantify the impact of different advice or different deal structures and the impact it has on the owner receiving or achieving his or her long-term objectives. We can do this very quickly with really a very minimum amount of information. But the most important thing that it does is our analysis gives owners confidence to proceed with transactions. And we've seen a lot of deals where the owner, they get to the final stage where they're ready to sell and they ultimately don't proceed because, you know, there's something in the back of their mind that that's causing them concern to proceed. So by going through a process like this, it gives a lot of clarity and gives them a lot of confidence to proceed with that transaction. Now, no matter where the owner is in relation to the deal, you know, one thing we always want to bring up is really understanding what matters most what are their priorities? You know, an owner who thinks they're gonna, you know, retire and play golf seven days a week or travel, well, you know, that's not gonna fulfill them. You know, owners, entrepreneurs, they're predisposed, they want to be involved. Um, you know, an interesting stat that, uh, that I read, uh, a survey was done of business owners one year after the sale, and it found that 75% of them regretted selling their business. And it wasn't because they got bad deal terms or they didn't think they got enough. No, it was because they didn't have anything. They, they, you took the business away. It was like you took a part of them away. They had no what life after plan. You know, the owner who thinks they're going to figure that out after, well, you know, they need to start thinking about that before the sale happens. And that's the whole process here, helping them think about, are you going to be spending more time with your family? Are you starting a new venture? It's getting them thinking about that. And that's what makes their long-term road successful. So to really bring this all to life, you know, let me give you a little background on the case. So this was a case that we were brought into by, uh, by the attorney in this, in this situation. And this was John and Julie Garcia. They were a 60-year-old couple. They had two kids. And they were at a point in their life where they were ready to retire and, and think about selling their business. Now, this is a manufacturing company that last year had EBITDA of about $5 million. So like most business owners, you know, the Garcias, most of their wealth was tied up in the business. 
but they were able to save about a million dollars in their retirement accounts. Now, when we sat down with John and Julie, you know, we really wanted to understand, well, what matters most? What do you want to achieve with this money? And they thought about it in, in terms of what are their primary goals and what are their secondary goals? Now, their primary goals, they obviously wanted to maintain their lifestyle. And they were accustomed to spending 300000 per year, and they didn't want to worry about ever running out of money. They also wanted to purchase a second home in Vail, Colorado for $3 million. And they wanted to protect this wealth. They had taken a lot of risks over the years. They didn't want to put any of this money at risk. They also had secondary goals. Secondary goals, they wanted to think about gifting money to children and grandchildren and also begin to make substantial donations to charities they cared about. Also wanted to make sure that they, leaving some money on the side to invest in promising new ventures, all while minimizing estate tax exposure. So the key question for them that we're gonna explore is, will a sale allow them to meet their goals? Now, luckily for them, they actually received two offers. The first was an all cash offer for $30 million from a local competitor. The second was a leverage recap from a private equity buyer that was gonna provide them with $24 million of cash up front. It was also gonna allow them to roll 20% of those proceeds, which is valued at $6 million into a newly formed company. And with this offer, John would continue as CEO, earning 300,000 for roughly the next five years. So you've got two deals here, one all cash, more up front, the second, less cash up front, but potentially more if these rolled proceeds can be sold for a higher amount down the road. So the way we structured this presentation was really to address these key questions. They've got two deals, well, which one should they choose? Can either of these deals allow them to sustain their 300,000 of spending and allow them to purchase that $3 million vacation home? How much can they give to charity? But importantly, how should they give to charity and thinking about transferring wealth children and grandchildren. So we're gonna address each of these key questions. And we'll start by addressing the first two. And to really answer these questions, we're gonna use what's called our wealth forecasting system. Now this is a proprietary model that we developed and built in-house. Now all the way on the left-hand side of this page, all of the outputs, all of the, the forecasting, it's based on the specifics about the, the Garcia, so it's about their assets, their income, their spending. We're gonna take information about them, we're gonna run scenarios that allow us to stress test different variables that they can control so that we can quantify the impact that they have over time. But to really forecast what their wealth grows to, we use our wealth forecasting model that simulates 10,000 different possible paths that the market can take. Now what's really unique about this model is that we're not just making a forecast using historical data. No, it's actually based on today's starting conditions. So when we forecast forward, we know today that interest rates are near historic lows and that stock valuations are much higher than normal. So the returns we're forecasting going forward, they're actually much lower than what we've realized over the last 10, 20, 30 years, all because of where we started today. But we are gonna show what the Garcia's range of hypothetical future wealth grows to under great market patterns, which we all hope for, but hope is not a great financial plan, but importantly, typical and hostile market patterns. So when we tell the Garcias, here's how much you need, we're not basing it on typical market patterns, we're basing it on, well, what if you get 
very bad returns, high inflationary environments, and you live a very long time, which none of those variables you can control, we want to make sure that this money is going to allow you to achieve those goals. So the first decision that the Garcias are going to have to decide on is, well, you're going to receive a large sum of money up front, regardless of which deal you choose. Well, how are you going to invest it? And to help them think through the risk and return of different asset allocations, well, we showed them the range of compound growth rates over the next 30 years of four different asset allocations. Now, at the top here, this is our ultra-conservative allocation. This is a portfolio that's made up of 50% cash and 50% bonds. And what this 3.5% number on the left tells us is that over the next 30 years, uh, we were expecting a return about 3.5%. Now, as you go top to bottom, we're adding more return-seeking assets or stocks to the allocation. And when you do that, you'll notice that the returns are higher. So a moderate portfolio, which you can think of as, you know, think of as a traditional 60 stock, 40% bond portfolio, well, it has a return of about 6.5%. That's our projection over the next 30 years. Now, if we just show the Garcia is the left-hand side of this page, they'd probably want the moderate portfolio because it has the highest return. Now, to get this higher return, there has to be a trade-off. And that trade-off, as you can see on the right-hand side of this page, comes with more investment risk. Now, investment risk, the way we think of it is the way we as investors experience risk. It's seeing our portfolio fluctuate in value from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, or year-to-year basis. And what we've quantified here is, well, what's the probability that the Garcias are going to see at least one 20% peak to trough loss over this 30-year period or 35-year period? And with the ultra-conservative and conservative, there's a less than 2% chance of seeing a 20% loss. But with the moderately conservative and moderate, that risk goes way up. In fact, there's a 9 or a 34% chance of seeing at least one 20% peak to trough loss. So in the Garcia's case, we should help them think about and choose an allocation that one, they're comfortable with, and two, that's gonna allow them to meet their goals. Now, let me pause there for a moment and just say, see if anyone has any questions before we you know, transition into the, into the next few questions. And I think there's a, a chat feature as well if someone wants to ask a question there. But hearing no questions, I'll, I'll proceed here. So using these allocations, well, we can now answer the first question for the Garcias, which is, well, how much can they spend? Well, how much they can spend is going to be dictated on which deal they choose and how they're allocated. So what we're showing here is the sustainable inflation-adjusted spending. So that's the spending from the portfolio assuming in dark green they chose the all-cash deal, or in light green, the private equity deal, but just the initial cash. So what all the way on the left tells us, if they chose an ultra-conservative allocation, well, if they had the all-cash deal in dark green, they could spend 415000 from their portfolio for the rest of their lives grown with inflation. Now, if we just had the initial cash from the private equity deal, they can only spend 355000 now, as we move from left to right, we're adding, again, more return-seeking assets, which had higher returns, and you can see that allows them to spend more from the portfolio. 
And in every case, they want to spend what this dotted black line is, 300000 So, you know, for the, in their case, no matter what allocation they chose, they would be able to meet their goal of spending 300000 per year grown with inflation. But in their case, they decided they were comfortable with a moderately conservative allocation. Now, using this allocation, we can now forecast what their estate will look like 30 years from now. Now, all the way on the left, they chose the all-cash deal for $30 million, paid taxes on it, and after spending $300,000 per year every year and buying a $3 million vacation home, well, they'd still have $72.6 million left. If they chose the leverage recap and the second sale, the stock was worthless, again, after spending $300,000 every year and buying the vacation home, they'd still have $51.5 million dollars. And if there's a six or a $12 million second sale, just means that their asset level is going to be that much higher. So looking at this in isolation, the cash deal, uh, it provides them you know, more than if the stock were worthless. Or if they took the leverage recap, they only need to have a second sale of between six and 12 million to accumulate more than the all cash deal. And when we had these conversations with John, he actually decided to go with the leverage recap because he felt if he's continuing to stay on as CEO, that it's very unlikely that the stock would become worthless. It was also very unlikely, in his opinion, that it wouldn't grow. So he put a lot of probability on this number here, this $83.9 million number. So remember this number, we're actually going to come back to it in a moment. But they did decide to choose the private equity deal because it did provide them more upside greater security for their employees and allow them to continue working while setting that transition in motion. So these first few pages allowed us to answer the first two questions. And again, before we go to the next question where we quantify how much they can give to charity and their children, let me again pause there and see if anyone has any questions. Feel free to raise your hand or type a question in the Zoom group chat. All right. Well, moving on here. So the third question, well, how much can they give to charity and their children? I think this is the most important question. And it, for us, it all starts um, with quantifying what we call their core capital and surplus capital. Now, think of their core capital as the dollar amount of money that the Garcias are going to need today, such that it will support their lifetime spending with a very high degree of confidence. So high degree of confidence, think back to that hostile market pattern where it assumes very bad returns, high inflationary environments, and they live a very long time. We want that core portfolio to support them even in those types of markets. But if we determine that they have more than what they ultimately need, well, then they have what we call surplus capital. And think of surplus capital as money that we're going to target for secondary objectives like gifting to charity and family, starting new ventures, or using it to uh, accomplish their maybe additional spending goals. It's money they don't need um, uh, to quantify. It's money they don't need to sustain their lifetime spending. Um, now, for the Garcias, you know, let's quantify how much they can give away to family and charity. Um, you can see down at the bottom here, we're quantifying their core capital. 
think of their core capital here, this 11.8, that's what's going to sustain their 300,000 spending and it's going to allow them to purchase $3 million vacation. That 11.8 is going to sustain those level of spending. But on an after-tax basis, they're going to have $24.2 million. So that means their surplus capital is $8.4 million. This surplus capital is what we target for gifts to family, gifts to charity. It's money they don't need to sustain this level of spending. Now, every time I've worked with a business owner, they all have a number that they think they need. You know, sometimes it's a round number. Sometimes it's, hey, I know so-and-so sold their business for $10 million, so I need at least $10 million. This takes the guesswork out of that quantifies how much they need from a bottom up based on how much they want to spend, how they're going to be allocated and what other inflows there are. But here we're just showing this is what they need, assuming just the initial cash on the sec on the private equity deal. But if there's a six or a $12 million secondary sale, well, that's just going to increase their surplus capital even more. So the Garcias were really confident in this in this plan because they knew they were going to have enough to support their lifestyle but they also had a lot to allocate to accomplishing secondary goals now using this number we can now transition to well how should they give to charity and this is where we actually worked with their accountant their accountant actually recommended this strategy here but there's a number of ways in which you can give to charity and what many business owners do is after the deal happens, they're going to have a, a big, you know, uh, a, a big pot of cash, and they usually take a portion of that cash and they give it either directly to charity. They might start a private foundation or a donor advised fund. Private foundations and donor advised funds are very similar. Donor advised fund doesn't have the reporting requirements. Um, it can be a more anonymous, and you don't have to make distributions out of a donor advised fund. So you get deductions going in. But in the Garcia's case, they actually still had time on their side. And what their accountant recommended, well, they know they were going to give shares or give to um, a charitable organization after the sale. They said, why not gift a portion of those shares to a donor advised fund before the sale happened? And by doing so, it creates additional tax savings. Now, let me show you how that works. Now, on the left-hand side of this page, we're showing a $2 million gift. Well, if it's gifted with cash to a donor advised fund after the sale, well, it's going to offset um, uh, income that otherwise would have been taxed, in our case, at 20%. So it's $400,000 savings from the tax deduction. So the effective cost of a $2 million gift is only $1.6 million if they gave cash. So they're saving $400,000 of income taxes. Now, if they did the strategy that the accountant recommended, well, that would entail gifting units to a donor advised fund before the sale happened. And in our case, they would receive a deduction based on the fair market value of those shares going into the donor advised fund. So you have the same $400,000 tax savings. But now that the donor advised fund owns those shares, they're avoiding taxes on those shares because the donor advised fund is a tax exempt organization. So as a result, there's an extra $400,000 of gains that's avoided. So the effective cost of this $2 million gift using units is only $1.2 million. 
So they're saving 800,000, an extra 400,000 by planning early using shares of the company and getting a deduction as well as avoiding taxes. Now, this is a very complex transaction. Um, to donate units to a donor advised fund, you have to have a, uh, an appraisal. Sometimes there are discounts, so you might not get a full market value. Uh, and also some donor advised funds don't take um, shares of privately held companies. So uh, there's a lot of complexity around this, but presume, assuming someone wants to make a big charitable um, donation, exploring this alternative can save a lot in income taxes. And it's not just the initial $2 million. If it's inside a donor advised fund, well, it can be reinvested and grow over time. So what we're showing here is $2 million in a donor advised fund that distributes 50,000 every year. Well, after 30 years, it would have made cumulative distributions of $2.4 million, and there'd still be $6.2 million remaining. So the total philanthropic value, the TPV as we call it, that the Garcia's made on this initial $2 million gift is $8.6 million over this 30-year period. So two million bucks, it can create a lot of charitable impact over time. Now, remember this $8.6 million, that's the second number we're gonna come back to in a moment. Um, let me pause there again before we go into the last question. Um, and, I, and I did see someone had, had a question, how did accountant help you with this? Um, you know, we work with accountants to run uh, the after-tax amounts. So we're just assuming for simplicity here that everything was taxed as a capital gain when in reality that may not always be the case so we really partner with the accountants of you know owners that we're working with to provide us the correct tax computation to you know identify strategies like the charitable giving um, that could save additional taxes um, there could be other tax planning um, ideas that they bring up as well uh, but let me pause there and see if anyone has any questions um, got another question here. What types of investments are made? Are the investments in mutual funds, ETFs, index funds, or managed individual stock portfolios? So great question. So for our modeling, we're just modeling index returns here. So when we're forecasting the future growth of uh, their portfolio, that's just, just mark, um, that's just forecasting, um, the, think of it as index-like returns. In reality, if we were to implement a portfolio, it would probably be mutual funds, ETFs, and individual stock portfolios. So in terms of implementation, um, yes, it would include all of those, but for modeling purposes, we are modeling index returns. So if we're modeling the US, um, uh, a, a US port portfolio, think of it, we're modeling the S&P 500. All right, well, let's move on to our last question here. How do they transfer wealth to children and grandchildren? And this is where we partnered with their trust and estate attorney. And the Garcias wanted to provide their children with a head start, but they didn't want to give them too much too soon. So their attorney recommended two strategies. The first was the simple one. Well, make the annual exclusion gift. So that's 15,000 per person, 30,000 per couple gift that to both their children and four grandkids. So that's six people, six times 30, that's $180,000 of total gifts per year. But they also recommended, well, we know that the 
retained equity interest, if it sells for six or 12 million, it's only increasing your surplus capital. It's increasing the amount that you don't need. So they recommended selling 50% of the retained equity interest to an intentionally defective grantor trust. Now, you hear the word defective grantor trust. Why on earth would anyone use a defective trust? Well, let me explain what a intentionally defective grantor trust or an IGIT is. And we illustrate that on this page. Think of an IGIT, it's a trust, an irrevocable trust that's outside of your estate for income tax purposes. But what makes it defective is from income tax perspective. So while this trust is outside of your estate for estate tax purposes, for income taxes, you're paying all of the income taxes on it. So you have this trust that's now growing outside of your estate, essentially tax-free, because your, or the donor in this case, is paying all of the income taxes. So if the Garcias are contributing money to this trust, well, it's growing tax-free, and they're paying all the taxes associated with the interest, dividends, capital gains. It's effectively a secondary gift without using their exemption. So the IGIT is a very attractive um, strategy or vehicle to transfer wealth and accumulate money. And it's um, necessary if they wanted to sell the retained equity interest to this trust. So remember the retained equity interest that they have is valued at $6 million today. If they're transferring 50% of it, so $3 million, well, the way that would be structured would, they, as, would be that they're gifting 300,000 shares to this trust and they would sell $2.7 million to this IGIT. In exchange, they receive a $2.7 million note. And that note would make interest-only payments based on the midterm applicable federal rate, AFR, of $77,220. And if those shares sell for, say, $12 million, which it now owns 50%, so in this case it would be a $6 million sale in five years, well, the trust would get $6 million. It would repay the $2.7 million note, leaving... $3.3 million to be transferred or to leaving $3.3 million in the trust. So this strategy effectively freezes the value of that retained equity interest. Any appreciation gets transferred to this trust free of estate taxes. And in their case, it's only using $300,000 worth of their exemption. So let's put this all together here. Now, what we're showing here is their median wealth 30 years into the future, assuming they chose the private equity deal. Now, if they did no planning, that's the first box here, this is that same $83.9 million number. This is what's left in their estate after spending 300,000 every year and buying that $3 million vacation home. If they gave 2 million to a donor advised fund, well, they removed money from their estate. So their estate, instead of 83.9 million, $78.7 million. In scenario C, if they gave $2 million to the DAF and they gave $180,000 every single year to the, the trust for benefit of their children, well, it lowers their estate to $60.9 million. And if they did all three of these strategies, gift to the DAF, make annual gifts, and they sold that 50% interest to the IGIT, it lowers their pre-tax estate to $47.1 million. Now, the benefit here is not necessarily reducing their estate. It's the impact that that has. One impact is, well, their estate tax liability is gonna be much lower. With no planning in scenario A, 
they have a potential federal estate tax of $23.2 million. That's the check that they'd have to write to the government for estate taxes if they passed away in 30 years and they didn't do any planning. But by giving to the donor advised fund, by making annual gifts and doing all three, it lowers their estate, which lowers the estate tax. In fact, in scenario D, their estate tax liability is only $8.6 million compared to 23.2, which is savings of $14.6 million. Well, where did that savings go? Well, a big portion of it went to charity. Remember, they gave $2 million to the donor advised fund. Donor advised fund, it's going to grow over the years. So remember the TPV number, that $8.6 million we mentioned earlier? Well, in scenarios B, C, and D, charity's $8.6 million better off. But so is family. And what we're showing here in the blue box, the 180,000 annual gifts reinvested, essentially growing tax-free because the Garcias are paying all the income taxes on it, well, it grows to $21.3 million. And in scenario D, if they did the annual gifts and they sold that 50% interest to the IGIT, well, there's $36.5 million in the IGIT. So they've effectively shifted assets out of their estate at the expense of paying more to the government, more goes to charity. So here we've made a total benefit to family of 14.3 million by doing the annual gifts and selling that 50% interest to the trust. So that's a huge savings by implementing a strategy like this. Now, what gave the Garcias a lot of confidence was that we created a roadmap for them. We created a roadmap for how they're gonna achieve all of their goals. You know, at the end of the day, once the deal closed, they were gonna have $31 million, 1 million of existing assets plus $30 million deal, of which 6 million is retained in the company. But they would set aside $4 million in cash to pay for the tax liability. Their core capital, that $11.8 million number, well, we disaggregated. We'd hold $3 million in cash to purchase a home. And then they'd set aside $8.8 in that moderately conservative allocation. That's what's going to support their $300,000 of spending. Their surplus capital of $7.2 million, that was going to be set aside in the moderate allocation. That was going to be used to fund annual gifts to their children and grandchildren. The donor advised fund was going to have $2 million in it. And they were going to work and distribute money out of that over the years. And for the rollover shares, well, of the $6 million, well, 50% of them were going to be sold to that trust in exchange for the note. They're going to try and transfer that appreciation out of their estate. So they had a lot of confidence in their plan because they knew how all of their assets were going to be managed to accomplish their goals. But along the way, they're thinking about it in ways in which they can reduce income taxes by gifting shares, getting that extra $400,000 of tax savings as well as saving estate taxes by gifting shares of the company, um, sorry, trans selling shares to the company uh, to that trust to capture that appreciation and making annual gifts. So Carl, what, do you wanna wrap up on, on the last page here? Yes, um, and um, hopefully in this short illustration, I know we shared a lot of numbers and a lot of graphs and facts and I, appreciate my colleague uh, Andrew 
for, for sharing this case study. Uh, hopefully you could get a flavor for the kind of work that we do. And, and it's, I think it's important for you to know, especially in the context of the question that was asked, we work closely with our clients' advisors, accountants and attorneys. And as Andrew said, we don't uh, offer accounting advice or legal advice, though we do oftentimes model the scenarios uh, within the context of the financial, uh, uh, within the financial environment. And so the purpose of this illustration is to demonstrate how we could give business owners confidence to proceed with a particular transaction. Uh, the goal here is to help them reduce uncertainty, perhaps analyze competing offers, and analyze various strategies for wealth planning. It could be a transfer to the next generation. It could be charity. It could be assessing their own personal goals. Uh, for example, Joe and his, I'd like to stay on with the second company. I'd like to ensure that my employees have a better deal. Those weighed in to the modeling here. And we have this distinctive capability. We have unique resources. We have a unique platform as well as tools to help our clients understand and quantify the impact, whether it be in terms of the transfer or tax savings or other. And just so that you know, this research, which is perhaps of the most valuable that we offer our clients, we don't charge for. That's part of an engagement with our clients. Uh, that's part of the relationship. And with accountants and the attorneys that we work with, we love to get the homework of working on a case, whether it be together with you in advance of a transaction or post a transaction, whether you do or don't share with your client, it would be a great opportunity for us to engage and hear uh, about the situation that you have and for you to provide advice uh, to your clients. We'd love to work on something together and that would be something that uh, we, we don't charge for, but perhaps it's of the most valuable things that we do. We, our business is managing money and, and the assets under management is, uh, is how we're compensated by our clients. But through this process, it's a great way to build value, identify areas of opportunity, and for clients to see, you know, is this the kind of firm that I'd like to help manage uh, our wealth? And we work closely with people like yourselves and look forward to the opportunity of supporting you and your clients. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of the Business Builders Podcast. To learn more about who we are, visit msatp.org or find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. We do a Facebook Live show for our members every week, so check that out for more content related to small businesses and tax updates. If you have any questions about what you heard today or if you have any feedback or suggestions on topics you'd like to hear about in the future, email us at info at msatp.org. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.